Welcome to Media Tribe, the podcast that's on a mission to restore faith in journalism. I'm Shauna Kinnair, an award-winning journalist with over 10 years of experience working for some of the biggest news outlets in the industry. Every week, I'm going to introduce you to some of the world's most respected journalists, filmmakers and media executives, and you're going to hear the story behind the storyteller. You'll get a sense of the integrity and hard graft that's involved in journalism, and hopefully you'll go away feeling that this craft is worth valuing. I went down to San Antonio to do a a short documentary on this guy named Mitesh Patel, who was advocating for the man who killed his father in an armed robbery to be taken off of death row. I've reported on the death penalty in the past. I've reported on the movement to abolish it, but I had never seen up close how the death penalty could actually be something that hurts the victims' families. My guest today is Versha Sharma, the managing editor and senior correspondent at Now This, the social media-focused news organization. Versha, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Oh, well, honestly, I've heard lots about you over the years from colleagues at Now This and also other mutual Irish friends. But you've had a wonderful career. You're now senior correspondent and managing editor at Now This. Yes, that's right. And before that, you were at MSNBC and Vocative. Do you want to tell our audience how you got into journalism in the first instance? Yeah, absolutely. So I um, studied political science in college. I was that person who was also editor-in-chief of our college newspaper. I always knew that I wanted to be in either politics or journalism, and I was able to combine the two of them and make it politi- a career in political journalism, um, as well as you know branching out into culture reporting. And So I actually worked on the 2008 Obama campaign in Louisiana, which is where I'm from, and that was quite an experience working for that campaign in a deeply red southern state. Then I worked my way up through a couple different campaigns. I went to Georgia for a Senate race. I came to D.C. thinking that's where I wanted to end up. But I actually was hired then for a city council race in New York. And then, of course, like many people do, I fell in love with New York. I decided I wanted to stay. I also decided that I was not cut out for campaign work as a career. And I, and I very much wanted to switch to the journalism side of it, accountability being an important part of that, I think. And so I managed through my campaign contacts to get an unpaid internship at a, at a site called Talking Points Memo, which is all about U.S. politics, digital media site, you know, new journalism. It was a great place to kind of get my feet wet and, and learn all aspects of, of digital media. And I was able to do that there. The internship went well. They ended up hiring me, paying me. I stayed for three years um, and I did everything from publishing to writing, reporting and editing there. Wow. So you really cut your teeth there. And is, from there, you went to Vocative. Is that right? And that was obviously a, a social media brand. And, it, you know, it's worth pointing out you are a digital native. Yes. Yes, very much so. Yes. So I've got about 12 years now in, um, God, 12, maybe 13, 13, 12, 13 years in New York digital media, especially, but I've gone all over. Um, TPM, I actually went to MSNBC after that to cover the 2012 presidential election there. And then I went to Vocative after that. Right. And now you're at Now This. For anybody who doesn't know Now This, um, you're a progressive social news focused media outlet with millions upon millions of young people tuning in every week. Yeah, it's still still a young company, relatively speaking. We launched in 2012. I joined in 2014 
which is when Facebook video really started to become a huge thing, if you remember. That's when they first changed the algorithm and you were seeing it all over your newsfeed. So we got really lucky because we were already focused on publishing video natively to people's social feeds. Like that was the groundbreaking thing that we did that nobody else was doing that in retrospect seems, you know, completely logical. But that was that was our whole mission and it continues to be our mission is is news for young people by young people. They put me in a leadership position, um, you know, a, a young woman of color. We had a very young, diverse newsroom. It's by far the most diverse newsroom I've ever worked in. And we've been able to grow into this kind of social juggernaut. We have 72 million followers um, across social. We've also expanded into written content and podcasts. So that includes website, newsletter followers, podcast subscribers. Um, it's been really exciting to see how it's grown from, from social video, which is still very much our bread and butter. But we do, you know, long form. We do full feature length documentaries. We're working with um, Showtime on on some of these, and and it's been great to see how that's expanded. That's, I mean, those figures are extraordinary. You you must be the envy of every publisher and news outlets. You've captured, you know, a millennial audience, and you've somehow created news in various formats and, and made people really interested in politics. Is obviously your speciality. I mean, how did you do that? What's what's the secret recipe? Well, it, it goes back to that mission statement of being news for young people by young people. I think we're able to speak very authentically to our audience because it's our peers. It's our friends. And that was always our motivation from the beginning when we would talk to producers who were pitching stories and, and learning how to script and frame them. We would tell them, how would you explain this to your friends at brunch? Or how would you explain this to your friends at a bar? Like that's the tone that we're going for. That's the voice that we're going for. We care about all of these issues. We care about what's going on in, in Syria and in the Middle East. We care about the immigration crisis that's both in Europe and in the United States. And there's this misconception that young people aren't interested in hard news or politics, I think. So we sought to disprove that. And we said the way to disprove that is by delivering them news where they already are. And where they already are are social platforms, right? Facebook all day. At that point, it was Facebook all day, less so now. Yeah, Facebook is for old people now, isn't that right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, um, all of these platforms. And so by publishing news, video, um, and content directly to these platforms, so nobody has to type in a homepage or click away, they can see everything that they want to see in their actual feed, that that just was able to um, help us grow our audience so exponentially over the years because we just tapped into this this market that nobody else was really delivering content to at the time. Exactly. And you are storytelling in a rather unique way. You know, all of the videos you guys produce, they're very consumable and, and easy to, to get through. You know, it, it's very, very digestible stuff. But it's also worth noting for, you know, people, if you don't know now this, you guys, you know, you get interviews, you in particular, Versha, should I say, you've interviewed President or former President Obama twice, yes. I believe, uh, Hillary Clinton. Bernie Sanders, you get the big guys, right? Yes, yes. So, I mean, again, going back to what we were saying about having this audience that everybody else wants, we're very proud of it. According to Nielsen ratings, we reach um, more than 60% of Americans aged 18 to 35, which is the market that advertisers want, which is great for us. It's also the market that politicians want, right? So when President Obama, and this was actually when he was still in office, um, wanted to speak to young people, they knew to come to us because they knew that we had this huge 
massively engaged audience. And that's another thing we're very proud of. It's not just that we have this young audience following us. They are incredibly engaged and passionate. They're the people who, you know, get out and, and make an impact in their communities and, and want to learn more about how to do that. So our um, advantage with young people is certainly a reason why we've been able to get a lot of these major interviews over the years. And it didn't happen overnight, right? In 2014, when I first started, when I called people or called congressional offices, they'd never heard of us, uh, understandably. And I had to explain who we were and what we did. And thankfully, because we were able to just build up that audience over time, um, we got to the point in 2016 where President Obama sat down with us at this incredibly important time in the election cycle. It was about a week before um, the election was over. And, and so, I mean, we were just so proud of being able to get that interview. We think it, it, it really spoke to how far we came in those two and a half years. It's a great interview. I recently watched it again. I mean, did your time on the Obama, Obama campaign help in any way? Were you able to say, well, actually, guys, I know you folk from, from um, Louisiana uh, back in the day. Did, did that help? Uh, it didn't, actually, in getting the interview. It helped once I got there because I told him at the beginning, I told him at the beginning about that experience um, and he was very kind about it. But it was it was much more so about the work that we had done at Now This specifically. Um, we had actually done a video, an, an interview series with Joe Biden earlier that year um, in January 2016. So that was like a great kind of test run. Like they wanted to come to Now This to talk about um, their initiatives for gun violence prevention, which is a huge issue for young people, right? Especially with all of the school shootings that we have um, in America that continue. So that was us kind of proving our worth to them that we could cover this serious issue, um, this interview with a high profile. Um, politician, you know, the sitting vice president, and deliver it in that digestible, consumable, shareable way that we always did. Um, so really, from like, from January to November, we were working on getting that Obama interview. It took us almost all year long. Amazing. No, it really was amazing. And I also recently watched your Hillary Clinton um, interview. I think that was 2019 as far as I remember, which is a great interview. Um, and it's also done in such a nice way. It doesn't feel stiff and, you know, it's it's very, um, again, really accessible. It's you sitting just having a chat, kind of, as you say, you're in the pub and you're finding out some gossip and, and, exactly. and, and you, you get to the point, Versha, which is brilliant. Now, on the topic of millennials consuming journalism, one emerging trend, as I'm sure all of you can relate to, is the rise of audio, specifically audio journalism. We've all been there, faced with an article we'd love to read, but just have no time. So recently, I came across an exciting app called Noah, who are leading the way in the audio journalism space. They produce spoken word versions of articles from top tier publishers like The Economist, The New York Times, The Washington Post and many others. So when I spoke to their CEO, Gareth Hickey, he shared some audience stats with me. And guess what? 70% of their audience is under the age of 44. In other words, they've created a way to engage millennials with quality journalism and to pay for it, importantly. I've been listening to Noah now for a few months and couldn't recommend it more. That's why I'm delighted to say that Noah is the official sponsor of the Media Tribe podcast, which means by supporting Noah, you're helping me bring you more great interviews like today's. So the first 100 people to click the links in the show notes on thismediatribe.com will get a seven-day free trial and 50% off an annual subscription if you choose to subscribe. Plus, 
in the run-up to the holidays, you also have a $25 six-month gift subscription available, which might be a very nice way to introduce a millennial in your life to the world of audio journalism. Right, back to Versha. Before I move on to my next kind of the big question of the interview, I wanted to talk to you about, you know, the financing models within journalism, just because you are sitting in, you know, one of, as we say, these digital platforms, which a a lot of the bigger names have taken a hit this year in terms of job losses like BuzzFeed, Vox, Vice. You know, how are you guys going? Uh, We're doing okay. We're we're very lucky. I think we're, we're well positioned in the industry because of our model and because of what we do. We haven't had to have mass layoffs um, like other companies have, both at now this the brand, and we're actually now part of a, a larger company. We, our parent company is called Group Nine Media, and that includes um, the Dodo uh, animal videos people have seen and love, I'm sure. Thrillist, which is culture lifestyle. Uh, we recently acquired Pop Sugar as well, um, which, which which was a huge addition to the company, and um, Seeker Seeker Network from Discovery, which is a science focused channel. So these five brands together just have huge audiences collectively. And we have diversified revenue models, which I think has really helped us. In the early days, we were very dependent on monetizing our content on social. And a lot of the social platforms didn't know what they were doing, Facebook included. So that was very much, I mean, we were learning together, basically. The the social platforms and the news industry was learning together how to make money off of this and also you know, discussing what the rev share should be. Um, Because there are these studies that, you know, Google and Facebook just ate up all of their ad revenue from a lot of publishers. Mm. So there's been a lot of learnings over the years. um, And I think diversifying our business models to include partnerships, sponsorships, branded content, um, you know, these podcasts, feature length documentaries, like all of that has absolutely helped us uh, be in the position we're in. So you're not just relying on ad revenue, basically, which all publishers uh, need to worry about because of Facebook and Google um, looming in the background. And I do believe that's a a subject you're quite passionate about. Um, I I watched one of your talks, maybe at Online News Association. I I think it's a subject we all need to start talking about more candidly because our industry is absolutely in dire straits. Versha, kind of the big question of the interview, is there a story or project that you are particularly proud of, perhaps that had some impact? Yeah, absolutely. One that I think one that comes to mind immediately for me is a short documentary that we did. So um, I went down to San Antonio to do a, a short documentary on this guy named Mitesh Patel, who was advocating for the man who killed his father in an armed robbery to be taken off of death row. Whoa. So, yes. I mean, heavy. It's a very heavy story, but it was it was amazing to be able to have kind of this front row seat. So Chris Young was the name of the inmate who was on death row in Texas. As you may know, the death penalty in the U.S. continues to be a, a very sore and controversial topic. Texas is the worst offender by far. They execute hundreds of people. Um, and continue to do so. So so the story just being in Texas, period, was highlighting the injustices of that system. So Chris Young, you know, he pled guilty. It was an armed robbery. His dad worked worked at and owned a convenience store. And unfortunately, Mr. Patel was killed in this incident. And what Matesh, his son, who who was an adult by that point with his own young two boys, had come to learn, like just through talking to Chris Young, who also had a daughter, Um, talking to Young's family, the daughter, talking to other people, 
he made the decision that not only did he not want Young to be executed, he was going to advocate that he not be executed and really put himself out there. So this was just, it was an incredible story. Matesh walked me through his dad's convenience store, you know, told me how it happened, showed me where it happened, showed me the tributes that people in the community had, had put up to his late father, talked about how having children of his own really deeply impacted his decision, and then talked about how hard it is to get justice in the Texas criminal justice system. And, you know, this applies to the U.S. at large. But it was really fascinating to me because I've reported on the death penalty in the past. I've reported on the movement to abolish it. But I had never seen up close how the death penalty could actually be something that hurts the victims' families. And that was, that was where Matesh was coming from. He's like, this is not going to bring me peace. Two wrongs don't make a right. This is not what I think is justice. So if the victim's family is pleading with you to not execute this man, why would you execute him? You're causing this family further harm. And so we went deep into um, you know, rehabilitative justice, what, what is actually justice for the victims? How can the criminal justice system help them? It became this nationwide story. We're very proud to say. So we published what was a 10-minute short documentary. Because Matesh is as compelling as he is, it became this national story where so many people got involved. Tens of thousands of people actually got involved campaigning for what Matesh wanted, campaigning for clemency for Chris Young. They wrote the Texas Board of Paroles and Pardons asking for clemency. Uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott, who is still the governor there, writing and calling his office as well. It was activists across the country, but it was also, you know, actors got involved, Alyssa Milano, Piper Parabo, artists like Common. It just really became a national story and a national point of discussion on the death penalty. Now, there was a lot of activism. A lot of people got involved. A lot of people learned about this process. And unfortunately, Texas being the state that it is, Young was denied clemency. And I was actually with Matesh when, when that decision came down and, and he just started crying immediately immediately started crying. And it was, it was heartbreaking to see. And, you know, it was, it was devastating. Honestly, it was devastating that this happened and that, and that young was executed after all. But what I'm proud of is our storytelling. I'm proud of the fact that so many people came up to us and said that they had changed their minds about the death penalty, which I think is absolutely incredible. You know, I'm still very proud of how we broadened the conversation. We pushed it forward. We changed people's minds. Um, you know, we couldn't save this man's life. But I like to think that Matesh got some peace from at least being able to tell his story and share his story so broadly. Um, and the memory of his dad, which, of course, it, it's dedicated to him. Matesh felt like if, if his dad were still around and, and this were other this were a similar situation that he wouldn't he wouldn't support the death penalty whether it was him, a family member or somebody else. Well, that's extraordinary. And it's, yeah. it, you know, it takes a really strong person and character to be able to, you know, come to those conclusions that, you know, two wrongs, as you say, don't make a right. And, and, and this person, you know, we, we, we should, this person, person should seek clemency. Um, and it's kind of, it, it brings me to a point about filmmaking and storytelling and journalism. It, it's, it's so effective. I have found, Versha, and I don't know if you agree with me, but to, to tell big issues and big stories through people, through a particular set of lens. And, and that is the way you get your audience to care to feel empathy. And clearly, it sounds like that's what you, you did with this story. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And 
you know, we for, we refer to it in different ways in the newsroom, um, subject first storytelling or person first storytelling. And that is absolutely what we believe in is in building empathy through storytelling um, and still highlighting these major issues that we're dealing with. So I think that was, it was, I'm so proud of it just because it is an encapsulation of, of all of those things that we care about um, and, and the ways that we decide to tell them. And um, Mitesh also ended up going to win a Courage Award from a human rights organization, which was amazing. Yeah, oh, that is so great. Well, I think um, we'll most definitely link to that story whenever we publish your episode, Versha, for sure. Um, and it's, you know, again, it's just testament to what you're doing there at now, this covering big, big tough issues and, and showing that a young audience really give a damn about stuff like this and, and, and get behind them. Out of curiosity, how many millions and gazillions of times was that video um, viewed? Uh, that is a great question. I don't, I feel like it's at least 10 million. I don't, I don't have a final number. <laughs> we, we, whenever we publish this and, and link to it, we can, we can verify what that is, but it was, it was at least 10 million views. Wow. You guys, honestly, my, my jaw always drops, even though I know you've tens of millions of followers, my jaw drops when I look at now this on Twitter and it's, you know, your videos and, and you've been retweeted um, millions of times. It's extraordinary. And, and, and actually how we know each other, Versha, I should mention our, our, our mutual friend, John Lawrence, who was the head of digital at Channel 4 News who also uh, ended up at Now This. and uh, But John also was real talent in terms of pushing these videos out to a younger audience at Channel 4 as well. So it, it is the future. It's what we all should be doing, at least trying to, to copy and mirror exactly what you guys are doing, um, Verisha. I wanted to ask you, you know, linking activism and journalism it feels like we shouldn't do that because, you know, we 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 must remain objective and, um, you know, just deliver the story we hear and what we see. But in in these days, it feels like activism and, and, and impact um, should potentially be part part of our jobs as well. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think this is another reason why now this has been so successful is because None of us, none of us believe in the old model of both sides journalism um, when it leads to false equivalencies, and we feel very strongly about that. And I think being a political journalist in America during this time, but also over the last fifteen to twenty years, we have increasingly seen how one party is divorced from reality and and often lies at an unprecedented pace um, compared to other politicians or other parties. I mean, these are just. I, I use this word way too much, but these are truly unprecedented times that we're living in. And our journalism has to meet that. Our journalism has to meet that moment. And I think what we've sadly seen from some legacy publications is a failure to meet that moment. Our job, you described us as progressive earlier, and, and, and a lot of our views and our newsroom, of course, is certainly progressive. But we still feel, regardless of what those political or um, societal views are, our job is still to tell the truth, to deliver the truth and the facts to our audience. Of course, there is always a little bit of activism, I think, even if people don't want to use that word historically, in what stories we're choosing to tell and who we're choosing to amplify. That's been the case for, you know, as long as news has existed. And so I think we just looked at that responsibility differently. We do our best to also hold everybody accountable, no matter what party they're from. And I think, you know, we, we actually did that with President Obama. When we had that interview, we pressed him on the Dakota Access Pipeline protest. We were actually the first 
news organization to get comment from him about how they were seeking to stop that because of all the activism that happened. And a White House staffer told me years later that I made his life hell for three weeks because I got Obama on the record about that question. So I do want to say, you know, people people have their opinions about um, our storytelling and our content. But when we have the opportunity, we do our best to, to press everybody. And going back to the idea of doing it for young people specifically, if you look at, you know, Pew Research data, young people feel passionately about the climate crisis, about criminal justice, about immigration, about equality. That's not breaking down necessarily along partisan or political lines. These are the issues that young people care about. So that's what we wanted to highlight. Issues, solutions, who's trying to make the world a better place. I mean, that's all we care about. Exactly. And you're delivering facts and that's all that matters. I think uh, hard lessons have been learned, let's say, particularly in the UK when, you know, during Brexit um, coverage, you know, this idea of balance in inverted commas and and deliver, you know, giving 50-50 time to both sides when, as you say, one side in particular wasn't telling the truth or in a polite way was misinterpreting the truth. Um, So I think what you said is exactly true. My next question, um, always a little bit lighter, well, sometimes a little bit lighter, I should say, um, but is there a, a moment in your career that's been rather crazy, something that nobody really knows about, you, you know, nobody, none of your colleagues in particular, or and certainly not, not your audience, Versha, that you'd like to dip into? And I always encourage guests to throw people under the bus as far as, as much as you like. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Uh, gosh, again, so many options. I don't, I don't know that I have anybody to throw under the bus right now. But I think uh, one one of my crazier moments and also reporting trips was I went to Moscow in May 2017. I was hosting a show called The Russia Desk that I also um, wrote and produced. And this is great about now this. Everybody does a little bit of everything for all of these series. And I had the opportunity to travel to Moscow, um, which was incredible. I connected with local fixers, right? I wanted a local videographer. I needed a fixer who spoke fluent Russian and could help, help translate for me only know very basic words. I'm, I'm by no means, I wouldn't even say I'm proficient, but I was able to connect with somebody who came recommended from a lot of different news outlets. She'd actually worked for like the BBC and a couple different international news outlets. So I thought that, she, you know, she seems perfect. She seems great. I bet you I know her. because You probably do. And let's have no names mentioned. I nearly know where this story is going, but uh, continue. So we were working together for a couple of days. It was great. For whatever reason, she didn't tell me until like three days in that she's actually quite close with the members of Pussy Riot. And and would I be interested in an interview? And I'm like, yes, absolutely. Absolutely, I would be interested in that. And so it turns out that not only are they activists together, um, she's quite close with them personally. And so I actually ended up at Masha from Pussy Riot's apartment while she's packing to go on a trip. And I mean, like, you know, I'm meeting her for the first time, but I'm inside her apartment. She's there with her child. She's packing. Um, we're trying to figure out, do we have enough time to tape this interview? And I don't know if you've ever been to Moscow, but traffic there is absolutely insane. And there, it, there was just like a seven lane traffic jam on the way to the airport. So they knew that they were running late and they knew that it was going to take a really long time to get there. So Masha's like, can we just do this in the car? Can oh, we do no. the interview in the car? And I'm oh, like, no look, I really want this interview. <laughs> so I'll, I'll make it happen. And we recorded this interview with three of us were in the back seat, but the camera's just on me and Masha with my videographer, Victor, filming it from the passenger seat in the front. And it was just absolutely wild doing this interview on this hectic car ride to the airport. Also, it was a taxi. 
So the taxi driver had no idea what was going on. I mean, we explained it to him and thankfully he was very cool about it, but there was a little bit of concern, like talking about the topics that we were talking about. Of course, there are protests against Putin um, amongst other things. So, I mean, the taxi driver ended up being totally cool, which was great. Um, of course, when we're almost at the airport, he runs out of gas. And so we're stopped for a while. And Masha is just so stressed out, understandably. But we got through it. You know, we got to the airport. She made it just in time. I got the interview. It was great. And I was very, I was very happy with how, how it all went down. And that was in May 2017. And then about a year later, during the World Cup, um, in Russia in summer of 2018. Um, I don't know if you remember, four members of Pussy Riot ran onto the field. I do remember. I certainly do, of course. Yeah, they ran onto the field to protest. And Olga, who was my fixer, was one of the members. And I was just like, oh my God, I know her. Just like watching her on TV, <laughs> running onto the field, had no idea she was doing this. We stayed in touch, but she kept her secrets. So, I mean, she, I mean, she's just amazing. I absolutely adore her and, and, and admire her, but she, you know, she played it close to the vest. I love it. I love it. Well, it's amazing the things one will do to get an interview. I, I was just thinking in that instance, though, Versha, it's quite lucky that you're one of the boss ladies. So when you've been back to the edit suite, it's not like you had an exec down your neck wondering why it wasn't beautifully shot and why it was shot in a taxi and why your interviewee looked rather sweaty and stressed. Exactly. Exactly. And, and the sound wasn't great. You know, like it was far from ideal, but we do... We lean into that kind of raw, authentic storytelling for sure. So we're completely okay with that. Yeah. And I'm sure your audience were completely okay with that as well. I, I've noticed over the years, people give less of a damn about what it looks like. Yeah. Well, listen, Versha, thank you very much for your time. You're a star for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Everybody should go and follow Now This and follow you in particular. But thank you so much, Versha. Thank you so much for having me. If you liked what you heard on this episode of Media Tribe, tune in next week as I'll be dropping new shows every week with all sorts of legendary folk from the industry. And if you could leave me a review and rating, that would be really appreciated. Also, get in touch on social media at Shauna on Twitter or at Shauna Kinnear on Instagram and feel free to suggest new guests. Right, that's it. Until next week, see you then. This episode is edited by Ryan Ferguson. 